we're going to read uh, from Mark chapter 2. Before, um, before we read, I'm just curious, did any of the guys, if you're here and you're dead, did any of you get flowers this morning? Did you get like a bouquet of dandelions or tulips, roses? You did? No joke! No? Uh, yes, a joke. <laughs> yes or no? You got, fl- you got flowers. Awesome. Most, I got golf balls, I, you know, which I'm quite excited about. Uh, I got some golf balls, Jim, so we, can, we could go out. And uh, I also got a bike pump, and I don't ride my bike. <laughs> There's a hint or something. A little, honey, bike pump. Anyway, it's actually for the kids. I always have to pump up their, their, their tires, but we have the cheapest bike pump. And it's like, but I've been getting, you know, buff. But it's been annoying. So I got to, and I got a thing for my phone because I'm always on the phone in the car and my wife doesn't want me to die. So I have a mounted phone thing. So now I'm not, you know, doing that. And uh, so, so it's a guy day. Someone got flowers. The rest of us got stuff we can hit and break. And I say that because tonight we get to hear about someone like doing a home renovation, which is quite awesome. Mark chapter 2. Verse 1 says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, even outside the door, and Jesus preached the word to them. Some men came, bring to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, and since they couldn't get to him, uh, couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and here's like the manly part, Uh, by digging through it, home renovation, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. No elevators, they dropped him. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. This is one of those, I've probably preached on this text more than most texts uh, in the gospels because it's just, it's full of color, it's full of adventure, it's full of risk. And, and I absolutely love it. Now, what's happening, for those of you who are newer to the study, we learned last week as we looked at the end of chapter 1. As a matter of fact, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 22, it says, in relation to Jesus, the people were amazed at Jesus's what? What does it say there? Verse 22, 122. Teaching. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing if you're looking along the Bible, and all seven of you are. Because he taught them as one who had what? authority, not as the teachers of the law. So Mark is just trying to let us, he's writing to people who didn't meet Jesus. He wants you to know from chapter one, Jesus is a teacher who has authority, not like the scribes, not like the religious leaders of his day. And so now in chapter two, verses chapter three, verse six, Mark gives us five in a row encounters, narratives, real life stories. Now Mark doesn't care which one actually happened first. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, not everything's in chronological order because that's not Mark's point. He says Jesus is a great teacher with authority, unlike the religious leaders, and then he wants you to see, boom, this is what it's like. And so he gives us five. Tonight, we're just going to look at the first sign uh, of the five that Jesus teaches with authority. Mark's going to do this again because if, when we get to chapters 10 and 11, uh, Mark's going to give us five more encounters, but all of them are in Jerusalem. So Jesus has been teaching far from Jerusalem, up in the north in Galilee, and he's making his rounds around all these villages. He's teaching, and boom, 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 he has authority. But at the same time, we're going to see tonight, with his authority, people don't like him. 
Mark has 16 chapters. From chapter two on, people are against Jesus. Remember when Mark writes his gospel, first eight chapters, it's all about the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And then the last eight chapters is about the last couple of months of his life, last few weeks of his life. Because Mark is interested in taking us all the way to the cross and the resurrection, to the gospel story and how your life can be changed. But he does this twice. He does it in chapters two and three and chapters 10 and 11. This is around Galilee, authority, but opposition. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, before the cross, authority, but opposition. So this is gonna see a, uh, be a theme that we see all throughout the book. What is Mark's point as we read it? Kind of big picture. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is controversial wherever he goes. And this is huge. Jesus is controversial. Now for us, we almost don't believe that because we've had Christianity for 2,000 years. So you think, Jesus isn't all that controversial. If you really read what Mark is saying and the opposition that he got, you realize as a figure, as a teacher, as the son of God, most people rejected him. They shouldn't, but they did. And so this is gonna come into play even in the story that we read tonight. So let's just look at it again. We'll go verse by verse and kind of pull out some thoughts. Chapter two, verse one, a few days later, Jesus enters Capernaum. You remember, this is his hometown. And so the people heard that he had come home. This is where he lives when he's not on the road. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And so we think this is Jesus' house. Did Jesus have his own house? We don't know. But it's either his house or Peter's house, his first disciple. So, so either way, it adds color to the story. Because when these guys grab a guy and bring him to Jesus, they are breaking into Jesus' house, which does add a little dimension. It adds a little bit of color. Talk about a risk. Don't mess with my house, but who cares about my house? But to go into Jesus' house and to break something open is absolutely mind-blowing. Well, what does Jesus do? He preached the word to them. The word is the gospel. It was the early statement for what the early followers of Jesus called the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus. So Jesus is reading the scripture and, and adding commentary to it like no one else. Have you ever read a good book, but then met the author of the book and, and kind of found out some of the behind the scenes? I've had the privilege, just in going to school, of meeting some of the authors of the commentaries that were studying on the gospel of Mark. And you get a different view when you've met the author of the book. You, you just see what they're writing differently because you see their personality in it. So these guys, these ladies, had the privilege, think of the privilege, of sitting in a crowded house listening to the author of the book. The author of, of Genesis through to Malachi, the one who inspired these words, and he's teaching them the meaning of the text. And it says, verse uh, three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man. Why is he paralyzed? Mark doesn't tell us. How did he get there? Mark doesn't tell us. He's not interested in those details. He's pushing us to the point. Carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the, what does your Bible say? Crowd. And now this is huge. 40 times in Mark chapters one through 10, Mark's gonna talk about the crowd. And you just need to put a little note on your side margin or in your brain. 
when Mark is talking about the crowd, you do not want to be a part of the crowd. Mark is going to contrast the crowd versus those who are disciples or learners or apprentices of Jesus. So Jesus blesses the crowd. Jesus heals the crowd. Jesus feeds the crowd. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. But nowhere in the first 10 chapters of Mark does the crowd actually come and give their lives under the leadership of Jesus. So you need to know that the invitation in this narrative will be to not be like the crowd. Rather, the invitation is to step out of the crowd and to fully express your faith in Jesus, which is really what the point of any of our gatherings are. To, to be a part of the crowd is not a compliment for Mark, but rather it's a contrast. So the crowd doesn't get what Jesus is all about. And I hope here tonight, because you're a part of a crowd, and coming to church is a crowd thing. We all come. There's no like RSVP. There's no one texting you. It's 601. Where are you? I hope there isn't. That'd be creepy. Like, you know, but you're just invited, and, and you know, here's the building, and here's the jelly beans, and here's the water, and coffee, and come afterwards. Have a taco, which we are going to do afterwards. We've got the Mexican. Do we have the El Salvadorian too? We have El Salvadorian uh, food. We're inviting you to go out and have a meal together. That's crowd stuff. Does it mean that by coming and joining that you are a committed follower of Jesus? No, you could be. But I, I've, I've been to many sporting events and not been a fan of the team or not even know what the sporting event is. But someone gave me a ticket. I'm like, sure, freebie, I'll go. So being in the crowd does not make you a diehard fan. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Going to McDonald's does not make you a Big Mac. You shouldn't have that anyway. You get the point. So the invitation as we read the narrative is to step away from the crowd and mimic the followers. What do the followers do? Verse 4. They couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the, the man was lying on. And this is so blasé. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, you've, you've heard this story. But in, in the Middle East and Palestine, there aren't pitched roofs. Even to this day, there are flat roofs. And so you had your, your series of small buildings with a courtyard in the middle, and it was all flat, and, and everyone was stacked together. It wasn't like urban sprawl. I'm mean, suburban sprawl. People were packed together. And so it was very hot and muggy and dark inside your house. So you only went in your house to sleep or to prepare something or to keep your supplies. But rather, you had stone steps on the outside of your flat-roofed house, and it became, think of your patio, your deck. That's where you hung your clothes to dry in the sun. That's where, where you hung out. That's where you, you invited your friends after a meal in the courtyard to go up and just look out. It's where you went to pray. And so, so this is, it's not like they found some hidden spot. They're going to the spot where you would go to, to cool off. Except they couldn't get the guy to Jesus, which says something, again, about the crowd. Everyone's clamoring. They're at Jesus' house. Everyone's in it for what they can get from Jesus. Four guys, you got to think, if I'm bringing someone who's ill and rumor goes around, Jesus is a miracle worker, a healer, wouldn't you think that people would let the guy in the house? This is common sense, but... Mark doesn't give us the details, but there's room for color. Wouldn't you think that compassionate 
good-hearted people. Our friend Eric had a brain tumor out of nowhere. What would it be like if we were trying to bring him into the hospital, into the emergency room, because he's having a seizure and his body's shaking violently? And you're like, no, no, get, get, get in line. I, I'm, I'm here. And, and, and what if there were a bunch of family members and friends who are just waiting for something to happen or they're sitting waiting to see a friend come out? And what would happen if they did not let us get Eric into immediate care? Would that not be strange? And so in the place where Jesus is, everyone in the crowd doesn't get it. Jesus has the heart of compassion. Jesus has the heart of love. But for some crazy reason, people are not giving up their seat, which is odd. And so they get creative. I think if there's a window, they try to cram him in the window. That's my personal opinion. It's not, it's not in the Bible. But if you're trying to get the guy in a door, what do you do next, right? If you're going to break into my house, see if my door is unlocked, right? Don't try to break into my house. Is, you're missing the point. But if you're trying, you, you, you go in the house or the garage. If the front door, back door is locked, what are you going to do? Are you going to chip through the tiles of my roof? No, you're going to go in a window. Doesn't say it in the Bible, but holy imagination. I think they try to cram him in a window. And maybe that didn't work. We don't know. But finally, they, they, they get away and they get above the house. And someone gets this radical idea. Let's break through it. Now, it's not like the roofs we have today with tiles or, or, or complicated layers. It was just wood. You had your flat roof, wooden beams, big beams going across, and then smaller beams crossing it, and you threw some thatch, and you threw some mud, and they rolled it out, and the dried mud was hard enough that you could stand on it, but you'd have to fix your roof all the time, especially in a wet season where it got soft again. You'd have to lay another layer of dirt and roll it out, and so it's not hard to break through, but somehow, for some crazy reason, courage rises up in their soul out of concern for who? Their friend. You got to see the contrast. The crowd doesn't let the man in. The crowd doesn't partner with the four. The crowd is more interested probably in what they have to get from this great teacher, healer, miracle worker, Jesus. But you do see something different because these four have the courage to interrupt Jesus at his house. They could have waited till the teaching was done, right? Ever think about that? Wouldn't it made sense just to say, hey, we'll come back when the crowd goes away. But something rises within them and they get tenacious and dangerous and daring enough and they, they, they put a little, a little opening in the roof and they kind of can hear where Jesus is and they start opening it up and, and I think at some point someone inside says, ouch. Again, it's not in the text, holy imagination. But someone says, ouch, because there are little, like little sticks are falling on them and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and someone says, hello? You know, I mean, what do you do? This is so, like, blasé for us. This is so radical if it's happening or if you're hearing it for the first time. Who has that kind of courage? Who has that kind of faith? Who has that kind of willingness to step out and rip Jesus' house to get the man who's paralyzed in? And we don't know any of the details other than they open it up and they get this man and lower him into the presence of Jesus. Well, what happens when they get him in? Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think it's good to remind ourselves following Jesus is by its nature radical. Now, let me make a distinction. Modern day 
religious systems are not necessarily radical. You could go to church your entire life and be bored. Hopefully not tonight. But you could go to religious meetings, whether it's here or another church or somewhere else, and you can go sing some songs and hear some messages and eat some food and go home. And, and I'm not saying the routine of a church that gathers and meets in homes like we do. I'm not saying that that's radical, but I am saying following Jesus is radical. And, and how do we know it? Jesus saw their faith. Now, whose faith did he see? Did he see the faith of the four? Did he see the, the faith of the paralyzed man? I think by inference, it's the faith of all of them. We don't know if, if the paralyzed man had more faith in Jesus or the guy who rips the roof or the guy who lowers the mat. I, I, we don't know, but we do know with clarity Jesus sees their faith. Now, their faith is not some private, esoteric, me and Jesus in a closet, communion with God. Their faith is evident, isn't it? Following Jesus, having faith in Jesus, will lead to faith-filled living. So faith isn't just some passive thing like, I'm an American, of course I have faith in God. I mean, in God we trust is on a Bible. Not really, but I mean, on, on, a, on, on a currency. It's on there, so we all have faith. It's cool in Portland to have faith, to have some sort of system of belief. But faith in Jesus, by its definition, is radical. It leads you to do things out of your trust in this this Messiah that you normally wouldn't do. And in this case, it causes them to take a step of action for the good of their friend. And so if you really want to follow Jesus, this is just a great pattern. It's super simple, but it's worth reminding ourselves. If you really want to follow Jesus and you really say, he's my leader, my life is his, don't be surprised at times when God sets you up with opportunities to do things you normally would not do for the good of others. And that's the key. What they are doing is not for themselves. As a matter of fact, they're taking huge cultural risks to, to open Jesus' roof and make fools of themselves. What if Jesus had said, what are you doing? Hello? Couldn't you wait? I'm a teacher. Jesus is interrupted in the middle of his message and he honors them. And he says, I see your faith. And so he says to them, to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, which makes no sense. This guy is physically injured, but Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are two things going on here. There's the physical healing, and we'll cover that for a little bit. But Mark is really after the opposition when anyone expresses radical faith. Faith in Jesus, what the disciples were doing, faith in Jesus, was going to lead to opposition. Jesus was opposed, even though he's preaching the kingdom of God, and his followers are going to be opposed when they preach the kingdom of God, and we see it happen in verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, these scribes that we talked about last week, these religious professors, these experts in the Torah, these well-to-do citizens, these political officials, these these good people that were not bad and they're seen as respectable, but they're now against Jesus. They were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus, the text says, knows what they are thinking, which is frightening in and of itself. 
Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the sent one of God, knows what's going on in the man's life. Son, your sins are forgiven. Even though it's, it's not obvious to the people, it's obvious to Jesus. There's a deeper issue. And then Jesus knows what the officials are thinking and how their attitude towards him is not with love and care. You'd think that these people in tune with God would joyfully accept Jesus helping this man, but no, no, rather, why does this fellow, they don't even respect him as, as a teacher, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Uh, to blaspheme the name of God in their culture was punishable at its worst case by death. At least by major rebuke, Jesus would be uh, chastised. He wouldn't be allowed to teach in synagogue. But in the worst case scenario, Jesus dies for blaspheming the name of God. And that's what they're thinking. Jesus is off. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse eight. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And so Jesus first, we see in Mark the, this difference between the crowds and, and difference between disciples. We see this expression of faith. When you have faith in Jesus, like these guys, you're willing to step out and do things you wouldn't normally do. Faith moves them to find the man in the first place. Faith encourages them to go beyond the door to the window to the roof of the house. Faith uh, gives them courage to rip open a roof and lower the man in the presence of Jesus. Faith is stimulated, and we don't see that kind of faith in the life of the scribes. So Mark's giving us contrast. Crowd and followers. Those who are in need, like this man who's paralyzed, and those who seem to have it all, whose hearts are bent away from Jesus. And so Jesus says, which is easier to do? It's Jesus' own words that stir the controversy. So don't get too mad at the scribes. What Jesus is saying is unheard of. So we don't need to blame the scribes, but it exposes what's in their heart. They're not open. Uh, no traveling rabbi is going to claim God forgives you. Forgiveness happens, you just think back in the first century, the time of Jesus, forgiveness happens at the temple with sacrifice. It happens with following the Torah. It happens with ritual cleansing. Forgiveness happens in Jerusalem, not up north where they are in Capernaum. And if anyone's going to claim someone's forgiven, it's the priest, not the teacher, the rabbi like Jesus. Jesus is not from the right tribe. He doesn't have the right title. He doesn't have the right credentials. So the scribes, for them to be opposed to what Jesus is insinuating, is okay. But what Mark wants to expose is what's in their heart. They don't see Jesus for who he might be. He might be the sent one of God. The disciples see it, and certainly the four who are carrying the men in. Now what we see here is also a picture of what's about to happen. Mark is setting us up in chapter two all the way to the end on the trial of Jesus. Because Jesus in the end is gonna stand on trial for what? Blasphemy. So Mark wants us to know early on, Jesus wasn't just opposed at the end of his life, Jesus was opposed 
from the beginning. They thought he's saying blasphemy. In the end, when Jesus is on trial, they claim that he has blasphemed the name of God and they cry out murder, stone him, kill him, and they send him on onto Pilate to be judged and to be killed. Uh, a little quote from, from Tim Keller who, who writes a, a commentary on chapter two. He says, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know, that he has a bigger problem than his physical condition. Jesus is saying to him, I understand your problems. I've seen your suffering. I'm gonna get to that, but please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering, it is his sin. And so this is where we see this mixture of Jesus dealing with physical healing and with sin. Now, Jesus knows sin is of the heart, and that's why he can look at the teachers of the law and the scribes, and he can diagnose their heart as rebellious and sinful. Just like he could look at the man who's physically ill and diagnose his condition as well. Jesus is opposed, but Jesus is the one who looks at the heart. And so verse 10 says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus doesn't step back. He knows what's going on. He knows that the physical, physical condition is an issue, but the heart is, a, is an issue. He knows that the scribes and, and their authority, that's an issue because what's creeped into their heart is sinful. They've missed the coming of God. God is in their house. God is walking among them, and the very people who are supposed to lead people in the ways of God, lead people in the scripture, they don't get it, and that's as wickedly sinful as well. But Jesus diagnoses it. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. Now, Mark's gonna use the Son of Man throughout his gospel a couple of times before chapter 10, but then he's gonna go rapid fire at the end of the gospel of Mark. We're gonna get into what the Son of Man is. Tonight, I just want us to look, before we look at some of the application, because the text is pretty straightforward, I want us to look at Daniel chapter seven. I'm gonna throw it on the screen just for time. What is the Son of Man? Because Jesus uses this statement that the scribes, remember, who memorized the Bible, they're the Bible teachers. They should know what Jesus is referring to because we're so far removed, some of us miss it. In Daniel, Daniel gets this vision of what God is going to do. And so at the time of Jesus, there's an expectation that Daniel's prophecy is gonna come to pass. Well, this is just a, a piece of it. Daniel 7, 13 says this. In my vision at night, I looked. There before me was one like, in the phrase, a son of man, a coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And this is what I want us to get. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All I want us to see, we're going to get into it because later on in chapter two, there's another account where we have the Son of Man and we'll, we'll dive deeper. All I want us to see is that Jesus is even throwing them a soft one to the scribes and teachers and to say, guys, I just want you to know, Son of Man who's coming will be given by God authority. Now, in terms of Daniel 7, 
None of them expected, they were expecting someone to come like the Son of Man, like a man, who would have God-given authority, and through this authority, he would rule, he would have power, he would have dominion, and his rule would never be destroyed. God would use a man to come and make things right again. But there was enough of a mystery that no one could like exactly peg what that would look like. Here's the beautiful thing. Mark tells us early on in, in Mark chapter two that Jesus is the son of man because Jesus is himself. Son of man, I want you to know, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is a trigger because nowhere in Daniel or anywhere in the early passages that the scribes would know my memory would this son of man or Messiah have authority to forgive sins. So what Mark is telling us is Jesus is identifying, I am the son of man, but I go beyond expectations. You need to know that this God-given gift, this man to come, will have authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he demonstrates it by healing the man. Look at verse 11. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. So Jesus says, I just need you to know, the one that you've been waiting for, son of man coming, he's going to have authority. He has more authority than you think. The son of man has authority to forgive sins. None of them thought that, that, that anyone other than God could forgive sins. Early we're getting this hint. Jesus is opposed because he comes as one who's not just a friend of God or a prophet of God or a servant of God, but he comes with God's own authority because God alone could forgive sins. Jesus says, son of man, sent one from God. Jesus says, I can forgive sins. And, and this amazed everyone. End of verse 12. This amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so on one level, we're gonna look at the other stories in the next few weeks, five in a row. Mark wants us to know that Jesus' message is radical, it's radically opposed, and this radical message is going to lead Jesus at one point to stand uh, in Jerusalem and be crucified for his claims, for his claim to come as the sent one from God. So before we think of just a couple of applications, keep your finger here. I want you to just flip over to the right to the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14. And I just want you to see where Mark is taking us because it'll take us like at least six months, no lie, to get to Mark 14. And I just want you to see it, Mark 14, verse 60 and following to see what's going to happen. We get it in two, but we're going to see it again in Mark 14. Here he's standing before the scribes in, verse, in chapter two. Now he's standing before the high priest. Verse 60 says, the high priest stood before them, Jesus had been arrested, and, and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? Because they were saying, oh, what authority is he doing this stuff? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Messiah? People wanted to know, who are you? Are you the sent one from God? Are you the Messiah? Uh, and, and are you the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, 
I am, said Jesus. Then he finally makes clear what's hidden in chapter 2. And you will see, there's this phrase, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus later on is going to unmask what's now hidden in chapter 2. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the what? The blasphemy. What do you think? He is claiming authority as God's authority. He's saying he's on par and can do God's stuff. And, and then it says they all condemned him as worthy of death. Verse 65, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Ultimately and eventually, what's happening in chapter 2, Jesus and his radical message is going to get him crucified. But, but, but before we go to the table, before we worship, before we enjoy a, a meal together, I want us to come back to chapter 2 and kind of make sense of it. A couple of thoughts. So number one, the passage is about Jesus. It's not about the four. It's not even about the paralyzed man. It's not about the scribes. What Mark wants us to see is Jesus more clearly. And early on, we get in multiple accounts that Jesus is someone absolutely concerned about human suffering, about human brokenness. So in chapter one, there are those who have evil spirits and Jesus Cast away the demon. It's what Jesus does. Where there is evil, where there is brokenness, where there is sin, where there is anything that's not like God, if Jesus is invited in, Jesus brings in the presence of God, the kingdom of God, and he sets people free. And so it's good to be reminded as his followers in chapter two, the people are amazed because they've never seen anything like this. I would suggest to us 2,000 years later, because we have seen it in the text, because we see it all over the place, we should not be amazed when Jesus changes people. It should be commonplace. Now, in cultural Christianity, maybe it's not. It may be your version of what you've seen growing up. But in biblical, authentic, Jesus-centered, Christ-following Christianity, people who are broken being touched by Jesus should be normal. We shouldn't be surprised when Jesus loves and cares for people who are broken. It's always been the heart of God before the coming of Jesus, in the coming of Jesus, and since the coming of Jesus. So we ought to pray like disciples, like Jesus followers, that we would see in our lifetime what God already wants to do. It is God's will and design to come and heal brokenness in all of its forms. And so don't be like the crowd. The crowd is wondering. The scribes are guessing. Those in, outside of the close following of Jesus, they're skeptical about it. Now, I'm not saying receive everything. Some people are quacky, and they attach Jesus to their life, and they should be exposed as quacks. I'm not saying everything done in the name of Jesus is Jesus. But I am saying that if you see Jesus for who he is, we should not be surprised when we pray for Eric, and Eric is at home. Now, God used wonderful surgeons and a great hospital system, but Jesus is at work in the healing and restoration of, of Eric. We should not be shocked when we pray and God answers. As a matter of fact, we should be an expectant people. The contrast is when you see Jesus, 
Live like the four, do not live like the crowd. And so God's invitation to you now and always is to live in the tension of, Jesus, this sounds crazy. This sounds radical. This sounds impossible. This goes against all of my university education. But Jesus, will you be Jesus to this situation? And I would just encourage you as my brothers and sisters, do not let skepticism keep you from experiencing what Jesus would want to do in your life. Now, I am saying there's a rightful place for thinking and logic, but is any of this logical? No, but where Jesus is and faith is present, the impossible happens. So I think it would be amazing if we were a community that was not afraid to bring God the impossible situations in our world, in our community, and this were the place, I'm not just saying Sunday nights, but your home, when you gather in your missional community, when you hear about something that is radically wrong and unlike the kingdom of God, that you would be courageous and you would be the people in your neighborhood on the forefront of saying, listen, I know it seems impossible, but let me bring you into the presence of Jesus and had the faith to believe that if they just got close to Jesus, Jesus would make them whole. What would it look like if we were that kind of people? It would be a radical faith. It would be a radical church. It would be radical encounter. And all of that, my friend, is in Mark chapter two. And I, I would pray for us that we wouldn't let the baggage of our past or the skepticism in our culture keep us from living out a radical faith. And so tonight, in response, it's quite simple. If you are dealing with a situation, it could be physical. In Mark 2, it's the physical healing. In Mark 1, it's evil, spiritual, demonic powers are gripping someone. It could simply be brokenness in relational issues. It, whatever the case may be, Jesus is all about remedying the impossible. If we believe. He saw their faith and he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, a second thing, it's not just about Jesus. Uh, another thought, it is about faith in Jesus that activated Jesus to do the work. Notice this is the first time in Mark 2 that we see it is the faith of people that leads to the result of healing. In Mark chapter 1, it was all about Jesus saw a demon, cast it out. But the, for the first time, Mark begins to tell us how this works. It's not just about Jesus. It is about people who express trust in Jesus that seems to activate the situation. What would have happened if the paralyzed man wasn't brought? What would have happened if the paralyzed man uh, wasn't lowered through the roof? We don't know about the what ifs, but we do know that when, when faith is present, Jesus smiles and is willing and is able. And so yes, the text is about Jesus and his miracle working power and his coming as the son of man and the son of God and he's God on earth. But it's also about what happens when we follow him. And so let's not miss the tension in the text. Jesus is present here and now. Would you agree or disagree? He's here. Okay, and terrible situations are present now. Would you agree or disagree? If they are. We live in a broken world. And so now we get the opportunity to live within the story and to say, Jesus, okay, if you honored their heartfelt trust in you, now am I, am I, am I saying, well, you need more faith because I don't have enough faith and, and I'm here on faith. I need to be here on faith and then God will hear me. You don't get that in the narrative. 
All you get is that they put their faith into action and they just did something. Let me su suggest to you, you don't need more faith in Jesus. What you may need is to activate faith in Jesus. He's given you this gift to trust him, but now it's a chance to do something about it. So tonight, in response, what is it for you? I don't know. It could be a sin issue. It could be that you've been just been broken by your own rebellion against God and you just need to confess your sin. You need to activate faith and trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, you know what I've been doing? You see my brokenness. I'm gonna actively follow you. I want you to forgive me and make me right with you. It could be a physical thing. It could be a family thing. All I'm suggesting tonight is Jesus is able. The question is, will we trust him? And tonight we wanna give you the opportunity to do just that. I'm gonna invite uh, the band to come and we're gonna worship through singing. But before we do that, we wanna give an opportunity for you to respond. Uh, tonight, when we looked at the narrative, we see that there's lots of players. You could be a part of the crowd and the crowd just stays on the surface. They wanna see what Jesus has to do. They're enamored. But hear this, the crowd in the end does not follow Jesus. They're out for what they can see and experience and receive. But in the end, they're not with Jesus at the crucifixion. They're not with Jesus at the resurrection. And chances are they're not in his church upon his ascension and going to the Father on our behalf. So at some point, we're going to need to step out of the crowd and activate faith in Jesus ourselves. We see the four. Maybe tonight you're here and you, you have this trust and you know someone that needs a touch of God. And maybe they don't even know they need it. Here's the encouraging word. You, you can activate your trust in Jesus. You can pray for someone else. This is radical. And Jesus can work on their behalf as a result of you praying for them. This is crazy. No, it's actually normal. It's the Jesus life. So maybe tonight your response could be, maybe they're here, maybe they're not. Maybe they're at home. God, will you, please, I want to see you work on their behalf. Or maybe you're like the paralyzed man and there's brokenness in your own soul and you need Jesus to isolate and investigate the situation and say, yeah, son, your sins are forgiven and you're made whole. And by the way, Jesus takes care of both. He forgives sin and he heals and he covers and he, he cares. He does it all. He's a great savior. So tonight, how will you respond? Uh, I want us just to sit in this for a moment. No rush, no hype. Uh, we're going to sing the first verse of this song, and then we're going to pray. We're going to invite you to respond. And it may be by receiving prayer for your physical situation. It may by be standing in prayer for someone else's deliverance. It, I don't know. But Jesus honors faith that has action attached to it. So just sing this song as a cry, as a prayer, and then we're going to open it up for, for prayer. Uh, does that make sense? Let's, uh, let's, let's sing this first verse.